Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. This is the last episode before we begin a new section on the gold rush. We're continuing our discussion today of the interim military government of California, how things were managed in this in-between period after Mexico lost its rights to the land and before it was annexed as a state, when it existed as a territory of the United States, loosely governed by locals and military. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating. I could use some more ratings on Apple Podcasts if you like, or you can help us financially through our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. Let's get into today's episode. Today we are continuing our discussion of the military government in the interim period between conquest and annexation to the United States. Last time we were talking about the Non-Intercourse Act and the Indian sub-agents that were appointed in the territory of California. So let's return to the two sub-agents appointed by Kearney to deal with the plus 100,000 Native American people living in California. At this point, the discovery of gold has not yet occurred. So the large mass of people from all around the world that would be invading this land wasn't quite yet on the radar. At this point, these two sub-agents' tasks were more mundane. The first thing that the sub-agents were tasked with was securing information about which native people were living in which districts. This is not quite a census, but more of a mapping of who is where. California, like we've discussed, is a huge land space dotted with diverse native groups up and down California. While California was home to many American trappers and scouts, the land was still pretty unknown at this point. The Indian subagent's second task was to develop regulations regarding the native people. There was a definite need for something like this, given the large military force remaining in the land after the war and the fairly local government, which we'll talk more about uh, in a minute. Finally, the sub-agents were tasked with being the protectors of the native people, which is something that would become increasingly challenging as the gold rush begins. To say that the sub-agents did not fulfill the last two tasks of their mandate is both an understatement and not really fair to assume that they could have some kind of top-down authority control of what was happening in these early stages of California history. We talked about the many times, uh, many times before that California was a frontier and was more accustomed to local government. As a result, when it came to native policy, things started to happen and they were handled at the local level by the various mayors and local officials. The local government was really at the discretion, though, of the occupying military force. For example, someone whose name might be familiar to you, a certain Lieutenant William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, who would gain fame and notoriety later during the Civil War by burning his way through the South to end the war, gave orders to shoot any Native Americans caught stealing horses. 
The military also required that all Native Americans should have certificates demonstrating that they were employed, similar to documents that we would, would be required of African Americans later on in the Jim Crow South after slavery ended, which essentially made it illegal to not be employed somewhere. These newly required documents showed essentially who the Native Americans belonged to. If the Native person did not have these required documents, the order gave soldiers the right to arrest them and hold them as horse thieves. And just to be clear, the punishment for horse thieves was death. As to the issue of land, Kearney and Mason wanted to default to the status quo as much as possible without seemingly creating new laws themselves, even though they were doing that already by creating these harsh sentences for horse stealing and employment. In terms of the mission lands, we've talked about the secularization process that happened during the Mexican period before, and it's important to remember that that was an ongoing process with the native people. It was far from finished at the time of the Mexican-American War. The land that, that was granted for the native people to use in that secularization process, according to these new military authorities, was okay for Native Americans to use, but was not to be treated as an asset of theirs. In other words, Native people could not sell or lease the land that they had been granted during the secularization process. Essentially, what the military was saying was, in this situation, the Native people were free to stay where they were, but they could not seek to profit on the land by treating it as a commodity. Because, after all, in the minds of the conquerors, this land was also part of the booty that the United States acquired as a result of winning the Mexican-American War. They also did not want to begin the process of removal, in part because there were not clear places to put the Native people that they might want to remove at this point. This was a policy in many senses of the word stalling. It was a policy of wait and see. It was a policy of no commitments. And as we've talked about before, commitments do not necessarily mean that they will be kept. But here, commitments weren't even part of the process. And then, suddenly, as we'll talk about in future episodes, that very same land became a lot more valuable. Gold was discovered in California in 1848, and all of the land issues became suddenly more acute. Simultaneously, many of the soldiers that might have been uh, enforcing or mediating conflicts between Native Americans and the prospectors and miners, they left. They joined the ranks of these same people seeking gold and riches. And suddenly you had a violent free-for-all where Native American land rights were even less important than they had been because the land was suddenly so much more valuable. By the point of the discovery of gold in California, the governor in charge was Bennett C. Riley, who, like many of the military men we've met so far, was a lifelong soldier with little to no experience in governing a state or territory. He was a physical specimen and a soldier with a lot of harrowing experience in the War of 1812, 
the Seminole Wars in Florida and was part of the invading force of the southern part of Mexico in the Mexican-American War. Bennett, unfortunately, though, was a victim of circumstance, and he could tell that he was on an effectively sinking ship. The violence against Native Americans would reach a peak during the period of the gold rush, just as many of the soldiers under his command abandoned their posts and began to seek riches. However, as we've talked about in the episode with Professor Brendan Lindsay, uh, this uh, series of violent acts against Native Americans would continue throughout the 1850s, uh, reaching their apex in this period. And for some perspective now, we're going to look at the most important of these local governments, and that is the government that took place in San Francisco. Between August of 1846 and 1850, when California became a state, San Francisco had six different mayors or alcaldes. The first American important appointed, excuse me, mayor of San Francisco, or Yerba Buena, as it was called back then, was Washington Allen Bartlett. Bartlett was a midshipman, a surveyor, and a soldier with the invading force. He arrived in California with Sloat and the invading force and was put in charge of Yerba Buena. Bartlett was fluent in Spanish and had some experience with legal matters. Probably his most lasting legacy as the mayor of Yerba Buena was the famous name change to San Francisco. Bartlett also famously sent supplies upon hearing of the tragedy of the Donner Party. Bartlett would go on after his time as mayor of San Francisco to a fascinating career in life, going on a multi-month surveying voyage around Cape Horn, spending time in Europe purchasing equipment for lifehouses. His daughter would have one of the most famous weddings of the period uh, that, uh, with a Cuban Don, who would, and the wedding would come to be called the Diamond Wedding and he would actually end his life serving in the Civil War. The next mayor of San Francisco was Edwin Bryant. Bryant was part of the group that was on the expedition with the Donner Party. Bryant and some of the others were concerned about the slow-moving wagon train and took an alternative route seeing the disaster of winter approaching. He famously left a warning for the Donner Party not to take this rougher path that he had marched along called the Hastings Cutoff. But the Donner Party did not get that warning, and therefore we now know the name Donner Party. When Bryant reached California, he volunteered for the army and succeeded Bartlett as the new mayor of San Francisco. Bryant's claim to fame was the selling off of beachfront property in San Francisco to private buyers, including himself. He claimed many choice lots of land for not a lot of cash, something that would be held against him in the courtroom later. The legacy of corruption in local politics is a stereotype that stands both the test of time and geography. The next mayor after Bryant, who served more than a year, was George Hyde. For those who know San Francisco, they probably know Hyde Street, which runs from Market to the Marina. Hyde, like many of the others, was a military man who served under Bartlett and was later appointed to the gig. Following him was a doctor named John Townsend, who served for maybe six months. An even-handed doctor from Pennsylvania, Townsend had a legacy of handing down justice more fairly than his corruptible predecessors and successors. 
Following him was Thaddeus M. Leavenworth, an Episcopalian minister and chaplain in the invading force, another famous street in San Francisco. The last mayor of this pre-war period and the most famous all the bunch was John Geary. Geary was also from Pennsylvania, like one of his predecessors, and was born to an ironworker and schoolmaster. He grew up with a dual interest in industry and education. He was schooled until the untimely death of his father, uh, after which he took on the debts of his deceased father and had to drop out of school. Later in his life, he would receive an engineering degree and go on to work at a railroad company. During the period of the Mexican-American War, he served as a lieutenant colonel and famously fought and led troops in the Battle of, of Chapultepec. This battle is one of the most famous battles in history, even though it lasted less than two hours. The such discussion of this important battle could be afforded its own episode, but suffice it to say, the battle was essentially a siege of a castle near Mexico City that could serve as a gateway to the access of Mexico City. The castle was not fortified, but to the Mexican military's advantage, they outnumbered the Americans in this battle. However, the Americans had surprise to their advantage, as there were many attack paths the Americans could choose to siege the castle. The attack plan was simple, an artillery attack followed by an infantry attack. Probably the most famous aspect of the battle was the death of five soldiers from the Mexican army who refused to retreat even after the call had been made. These soldiers would become to be known as Los Niños Eros. Gabriel Flores, uh, the amazing artist, produced a truly magical mural about this in 1967. I encourage you to Google it. It has the same name, Los Niños Eros. The mural has a transcendence usually associated with religious murals and paintings, and this kind of mythology about these five soldiers has been passed down through generations in Mexico. In any case, back to Geary, he was wounded five times in this battle. Another battle that followed this one was at a gate to the entrance to Mexico City, and again, Geary was wounded. Part of the magnetism that attracted fire at Geary was his sheer size. Standing at six foot six and 260 pounds, if Geary had been born 150 years later, he might be running up and down the court with the Splash Brothers instead of sieging a Mexican castle. After the war, Geary returned home as a war hero, a badly beat up one at that. After the war, Geary moved west and was appointed Postmaster of San Francisco by James K. Polk. The job of Postmaster was coveted, allowing an individual to establish his post offices, postal routes, and make contracts for the post office. Afterwards, he would become mayor of the city. Now, I have a quote for you, um, and this is something that Geary said about San Francisco uh, right before uh, it became an American city as California was annexed to the United States. Here's what Geary said about San Francisco. Quote, At this time we are without a dollar in the public treasury, and it is to be feared the city is greatly in debt. You have neither an office for your magistrate, 
nor any public edifice. You are without a single police officer or watchman and have not the means of confining a prisoner for an hour. Neither have you a place to shelter while living, sick, and unfortunate strangers who may be cast on your shores or to bury them when dead. Public improvements are unknown in San Francisco. In short, you are without a single requisite necessary for the promotion of prosperity, for the protection of property, or the maintenance of order." Geary would go on after the annexation of California to be the first mayor of the city, and there is certainly more that we will say about him and his tenure as the first mayor under U.S. control and when California was a state of the United States. Now, at this point, we are done talking about the interim military government in California, even though we could say a lot more about the subject. We are now going to be talking about it within the larger context of the California gold rush. Next time, we are going to take a 10,000-foot view of the gold rush before we get into the nitty-gritty details of how this critical period in California history explains many aspects of California history. See you next time.